Welcome to Book Banter with me, your host, Diane Burkhart. I hope you will join me every Wednesday as we explore all things to do with, well, <laughs> books. Let's get on with our show today. Hello, my happy people. Today is October 26th, and we are back from vacation. We had a lovely time going to Italy to visit some friends of ours, and then we went to Paris to go to Euro Disney. It was so much fun. My better half PR had never been to a Disney park anywhere, so this was a special trip for us. Unfortunately, we both came back with colds. Luckily, it was not COVID, thank goodness. But we have been coughing our heads off for almost two weeks now, so we're ready for that to be over with. Anyway, we did manage to get through an interview today with my friend Carrie Donovan, who is a singer-songwriter with the group Backyard Whiskers. They are an amazing rockabilly group, and links are in the podcast description, so you should go check out her music. But today, she has joined us to read her award-winning short story, and we are going to get right to the interview. So please help me welcome my friend, Carrie Donovan. The first thing that I always do with all of my guests, and my regular listeners know this, I always ask people to explain how we know each other, because I want my audience to understand what they need to do to help network and meet people like you who are, you know, writers and singers and people in the entertainment industry. So how did we meet? Well, we met on the American Women of Norgrind Westfalen Facebook group. I didn't go on there to network with other uh, literary people, but just other American women. And you and I started talking because, well, I don't know, uh, there was a book club being formed and we were both interested in forming a book club. And that is off the ground, but you haven't attended any of the meetings yet. Oh, no, I, I left the book club a long time ago. I just, I wasn't, I didn't have time. That's all right. But I've, I've really enjoyed it. So that was a, a good thing to start. I, I have really been amazed how many women in our American women's group are writers. There's a lot of them. Really? Oh, yeah. There's a couple of that have started self-publishing as well. And I've been hoping to try to maybe get a writing group back together. I know somebody had tried to start one a long time ago when we first put the group together. Mm -hmm. And it never really took off. But I kind of want to try that again and see if we want to get some self-publishers together to do that. I mean, I'd be interested in joining a writing group to have people to bounce ideas off of. I started writing my first novel this year. I'm only partly into it and... Sometimes I, I just want somebody else to be like, you're going up the wrong tree, you're, this is good, this is bad, um, oh, yeah. before I share it with other people. <laughs> now, I'm actually part of a writing group online on meetup.com mm -hmm. that they also have a page on Facebook that's called Power of the Pen, and it is a global group. It used to just be local in Dusseldorf, Germany, mm -hmm. but it has gone global since the pandemic. And it is a great group. You might want to look into joining that one with me because I will. And I, I suggest this to everybody. That's why I'm going ahead and putting this out here in the podcast. It has probably about 500 members globally, but the meetings only tend to be about 10 people at a time. Mm -hmm. But you get a nice kind of turnover for who participates every week. 
and you get great information from these people. They have such good critique habits that they're very positive. They're very helpful. And I've, I've really been impressed with this group. Tell me about Backyard Whiskers. How did you get started with your rockabilly group? I joined an existing band called the Backyard Whiskers. That was about, I don't know, six years ago. And they just needed a bass player. So I joined as the bass player. And then they wanted me to do backup vocals. And I was happy to do that because I've been a lead singer for a very, very long time in punk bands. And then the lead singer left and I became the lead singer of this band. We don't play a whole lot, but it's a fun thing to do. I like the video that you all have out. I have a link to it in the podcast information so oh, other thanks. people can find it. But it is yeah, so cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping someday to return to the studio. I've got a few more new songs that haven't been recorded yet. But yeah, I like to write songs. <laughs> Did writing songs lead into you writing for this Halloween contest with the, no. was it Baltimore County Public Library? I wanted to actually be a writer since I was a kid. And I kind of put a very, very long pause on that you know, getting it into the workforce and not having the time and then feeling like I was, you know, run out of ideas. But this year I put a little bit more time into it. And then I saw that there was this call for a short story. And I thought, hey, you know, short story, that's something that won't take too long to write. And I think I can do that. And lo and behold, I won this contest. What is your story about? The story is about Walpurgisnacht. I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, living in Germany, but it is basically a witchy night, a witchy holiday in Germany that is celebrated more as Tanzen den Mai. So it's the um, welcoming of spring and a springtime ritual, but some people say it's when the witches meet on the top of the highest mountain in the hearts. And I thought, okay, let's let's have a story about people gathering on Walpurgisnacht and, you know, having a bonfire and a dance, getting all primal, and then bringing the witches, you know? <laughs> so, and the more I looked into how this holiday is based, what the facts are, what the legends are, I added them into the story and came up with what I came up with. Oh, I love whenever people blend, like actual folk history and imagination, it always comes up with such great ideas. I also tied it to what's going on in current affairs with COVID. The saint, Walburga, she was the patron saint of plagues and crops. So, oh, wow. you know, we're having climate change and we're having epidemics. And I thought, wow, if anybody was to be prayed to, uh, if you wanted to pick your saint for this era, it would be her. So, <laughs> Very nice. I love this. Yeah. Okay, so I am dying to hear your story. Are you okay. ready to read it for us? I will read it for you. It's called Walpurgisnacht. And I'm going to try to do the accents, although it might sound really stupid. <laughs> I might have to redo. <laughs> no problem. Uh, okay, here it goes. It was a cool spring evening as the tour bus began its lumbering journey up the mountain. Bess hadn't been to Germany in ages, but the sights and sounds of the forest stirred her memory. Leaning against the window, she took in the scenery. Great swaths of larches and chestnuts, many brown from drought, 
waist-high nettles lining the road as if to greet her, carpet of cheerful white-blossomed wood ruff spreading under the deciduous trees. The window was tilted open blessedly. She peeled down her mask for a moment to steal a whiff of the perfumed mountain air. What was that smell? Elderberry? A bit of moss and mold? The sweet, just-out-of-reach smell brought to mind fuzzy images of good old times, traipsing through woods like these. Perhaps her memory fog would clear with a little more exposure to the sights and smells of places she'd been. That's what the doctor had said after the accident, so here she was, a tourist in a place she used to know. The bus was half full. Most of the passengers sported long flowing dresses and robes, and black plague doctor masks with long crow-like beaks. Some of the women wore witch hats, the men double horns. Bess herself had forgotten that there might be some dress code for the event, and had boarded in a simple black cotton dress and her ever-present FFP2 mask, a standby since the pandemic. Two seats away, a young man, college student by the looks of him, had also apparently not considered the dress code. He looked like a typical American backpack tourist. Dirty white baseball cap, shaggy brown hair, hoodie, cargo shorts, and sneakers. The American saw her looking and winked. Jack Hart, he said, holding out his hand. Bess shook it, making a mental note to disinfect later. Bess Wahlberg, how'd you do? Nice name, like Mark Wahlberg? Sorry, Mark who? The fellow looked stunned for a moment, then looked like he'd solved a puzzle. Oh, you're English, aren't you? That's right. And with that, Jack Hart launched into a lengthy explanation of both the celebrity and the fact that the mountain they were about to dance on was associated with an English witch, and there might even be a bonfire called a witch burning to cleanse the air of contagion. Yes, that explains the witch costumes, said Bess, gesturing around the bus. The other passengers were in great spirits, chatting in German and passing around bottles of sweet wine spritzer. As they bustled up to the broad mountaintop, a strange structure appeared on the left. What looked like a giant red and white rocket squatted there, ringed with four railingless balconies. Behind it, a low-slung L-shaped structure gave way to what resembled a prison guard tower topped with a giant golf ball. Weather station announced Jack. They once did an experiment to search for witches here, but didn't find any. Rats, smiled Bess. The confinement of the seat was becoming agony, her seatmates mansplaining even more so. At first glance, she had sized up Jack as attractive. His sharp, dark features delivered a flirtatious smile, but his apparent habit of speaking without listening had already turned her off. She knew about the English witch. She knew about the weather station experiments. Did he think she had boarded a tour bus without knowing where it was going? That she had no idea about the event transpiring that evening on top of the Brocken, the tallest mountain in the hearts? The bus parked next to several others in a lot near the weather station, and everyone shuffled off. Bess stepped lightly to the group gathering near the pile of wood around a tall stake to which a scarecrow was tethered. I was right, came a gleeful whisper in her ear. There will be a witch burning. Look there, that's the witch, see? Jack pointed to the dummy, whose dress rather resembled Bess's own plain cotton gown. From a small speaker near the door, Flight of the Valkyries began. A few of the witches and devils gave howls and yips of pleasure. A cloud of fog emanated from a smoke machine nearby, and the bus driver, given away by his great gut, waddled out in a robe and devil mask. Pulling down his mask for a moment as introduction, the driver waved down the music and spoke in a loud voice, translating into English out every now and then. Welcome to the Blocksburg, also called Brocken. 
Host Bayern is happy to present the ultimate Tanzendin Mai event for your pleasure. Please keep a lookout in the sky for flying brooms, he chuckled, gesturing in a wide arc to the sky. And help yourselves to Pilsner, soft drinks, wurst, and potato salad, he continued with a wave toward the low-slung building where a wrinkled woman in a purple dress and FFP2 waved from an open service window at a snack bar. For those of you unfamiliar with this dance, he smiled, it is a welcoming of the month May. And we burn the bad air and the witch which makes the bad air. As the driver spoke, Jack excitedly overrode the narrative in whispers to Bess's ear. Bess sighed and politely listened. Do you know tonight is Walpurgisnacht? The night when the witches are said to fly over this mountain right here? The dance is just the part everyone still does all over Germany. Only the weirdos celebrate it for what it really is, he said excitedly, dark eyes flashing. Bess took the bait. So why do witches gather here then? To meet the devil. But why? This time Jack didn't seem to understand why that was even a question. To get power to do magic, I guess. Of course, thought Bess with an inner eye roll. Of course, the women could only have magic power with the help of a magic man. As night fell, the air grew cold. The crowd hugged the fireside, casting unearthly shadows with their drunken revelry. Five witchy women who had been chatting together on the bus had become wild, shrieking with laughter and losing their hats as they emptied tankards into their gaping mouths. They had been joined by a handful of devil men. One who had slathered his face in red paint was whooping and beating some hand drum in time to Helena Fisher's atomlos on the loudspeaker. A few couples had snuck away to the relative privacy of the buses, others to the scrubby pines behind the weather station. Bess felt it at once, an outsider and at home. Some of the music was new, but fire and dancing, primal. She whirled around, smiling, clutching her beer, narrowly missing one couple, navigating around and between revelers. She circled the fire for what seemed like hours, around and around until she became dizzy. All of a sudden, someone was trying to get her attention urgently. Duda, du prinst! Slowly, Bess followed the imaginary line from a devil man's finger to her thigh, which felt hotter than a moment ago. Her dress was indeed on fire. A nearby witch beat the flame climbing Bess's dress with a cloak, suffocating it. A bit more leg showed than before, but the charred outline at least matched her black dress. All is klar, asked the witch with a motherly pat. No witch is burning tonight, she laughed. Bess thanked the woman and searched for a place to take a break. A log a few meters from the fire beckoned. Still reeling, she hunkered down and gazed at the scene. A crowd of about 200 had arrived on the bus fire and fleet, blocking the view of the road to her left. She sat with her back to the buildings facing the bonfire. The revelers had become crazed. Some had peeled off their robes, frolicking in the moonlight in their plague doctor masks. It was hard to say how many were naked now, as the dancers were in constant motion around the fire, four rows deep. Oversized, sweaty men flickered red in the firelight, and white-haired grannies raised their arms to the effigy whose dress had finally caught fire with a whoosh. Bess couldn't help but focus on the naked ones who were easier to pick out. A man built like the bus driver and a woman resembling the bartender. Scarcely would they disappear behind the fire before returning on the other side, as if the journey around the back of the fire had only lasted a single step. No, of course not. Surely a trick of the eyes. Squinting, she compared the bodies before her. There must be more than one nude couple circling the fire. Could it be that all the naked men looked like her bus driver and all the naked women looked like the bartender? She turned around and looked over to the bar. 
A figure stood there in the shadows. The same old woman she had seen earlier, pouring a pilsner from the tap for a witch in green rags. Bess closed her eyes. The heat reached her even this far from the fire and was making her sweat. She pulled off her cardigan. Above, the moon shone full and bright. Embers drifted up to the head of the effigy and higher still to the heavens. Suddenly, a hand clapped her on the back and a low, warm voice rang out. There you are. The maskless American scooted next to her on the log bench and held out a beer. He smelled of fire, alcohol, and cologne. No thanks, just taking a break, Bess murmured. You look like you need it, Jack smiled, eyeing her. Hey, I know where there's a real couch. He led her by the hand, away from the fire, past the food and drinks, away from the people, up to the rocket tower, up a set of cool metal steps. A wicker imitation couch with durable outdoor cushions welcomed her on the lowest balcony facing the bonfire. She toppled onto it, appreciating the texture of the moldy-smelling cushion against her face even as the world began to spin. Miles away, a hand was examining the hole in her dress and the light beneath it. Even more miles away, the moon was laughing down at the revelers as they continued to circle the fire. She heard some chanting from below and watched as the fire licked the effigy helplessly tied to the stake. Now her view was blocked. Jack was on her, crushing her with his full weight, saying something about while Pergus knocked and fertility, about how he had read that it was customary for couples to spill seed on the rocky ground. Bess struggled to get free, but he pinned her wrists. Ignoring her interruptions, he went on about fertility rites and rituals. Below, the chanting reached a fever pitch, and the fire engulfed the effigy totally. Jack pulled Bess's mask off. He seemed intent on intruding upon her mouth, but Bess screamed, Halt! Perhaps it was the volume of her command that froze him at first, or perhaps it was an outpouring of infectious microbes carried from her lungs on the word, like a fine spray of dust choking him into silence at last. Halt, she whispered again, lifting herself off the couch. Bess felt her blurry thoughts swirling and spinning in her head. She wasn't sick, no, but from somewhere deep within, she knew she had unleashed a swarm of pestilent microbes at the man now lying confused before her. Like thread on a spindle, the loose strands of awareness began to take form as layer upon layer fell into place. Clear-headed now, she regarded Jack. He labored for breath, squinting up at her. What? You may undress now, Bess instructed. She nodded and lifted her own burned rag of a dress over her head. Jack hesitated for a beat, then undid his belt and unzipped his pants. All of it, urged Bess. Between coughs, Jack managed to strip completely. Grinning sheepishly, he crossed his legs in case someone from below was looking. He looked smaller. Now put this on. Bess threw her dress at him. Whoa, he okay. Apparently grateful to be covered again, Jack donned the garment. A strong wind stirred up the embers and sent them eddying into the air. The fire hissed and popped. Skin shining white in the moonlight, long black hair whipping in the wind, Bess stood like a queen. She held out one graceful hand to her suitor. He took it and joined her in embrace, although his breath was coming in short bursts now. She led in a slow dance, gently guiding him along the balcony. It was easy to pull him to the edge and over, dizzy as he surely was from the pneumonia. At the tipping point, Bess whispered, Goats make the best sacrifices. They treaded air together for an adrenaline-filled moment. 
For a fraction of a second, the man appeared to understand he was a goat. And for a fraction of a second, the goat appeared to understand he was falling. Before hitting the ground, however, Bess shifted onto his back and grabbed his new horns like a pair of reins. He jerked up and steered out of the fall. They rose in a wide arc over the parking lot, buoyed by the wind, still unseen in the shadows. Bess held her prey tightly with her hands on his horns and heels digging into his underbelly. He gave a bleat of surprise, then obeyed her pushes and pulls. As they rode the wind current to the fire, the revelers finally noticed and roared with excitement. Walburga! Walburga! they chanted. Bless our farms! Bless our health! they cried. And Bess dropped the goat, dress and all, into the fire and touched down lightly on her bare feet. At the hotel the next morning, Abbess Walburga took her morning tea in the dining hall at the head of the banquet table. She was joined by the innkeepers, the corpulent bus driver and wrinkled barmaid from the night before, and a good 30 hungover revelers. The bergamot tea tasted delicious. Johannes, the host, reminded her that it was a new blend, Earl Grey. She'd had it the morning after the first Walpurgisnacht celebration in 1896. She made a mental note to ask for it again the next time she visited. She had gladly accepted an old-fashioned blue and white gown and head covering from the barmaid, Hildegard, who had tailored it to match a bust of her from 780, the year of her death. Although she now looked like the one in costume, Walburga felt dressed for work. My dears, she said, grasping Johannes and Hildegard by the hands and looking each in the eye in turn. So good to break bread with you both again. Many thanks for your praise and hospitality. I do apologize for not recognizing you immediately last night. I wasn't entirely myself until rather late in the evening when that dreadful man attempted to have its way with my new body, she said. And speaking of male dominance, she continued thoughtfully, Johannes, will you please stop telling that twisted story about witches causing pestilence and deserving to be burned? I'm the patron saint of epidemics and famine, for heaven's sake. Sorry, Reverend Mother, Johannes agreed with a quick bow. It's only, you see, men of the past few centuries have become a bit squeamish about women as powerful as yourself. We thought it best to keep the tradition alive by allowing them to believe they were burning witches instead of calling upon your blessings. Think of it as a rebranding for modern times, interjected Hildegard with a knowing smile. Down the banquet table, the diner seemed unconcerned to be dining with a 1,300-year-old holy woman. Do they know, asked Walburga, taking in the assorted group, now dressed in a jumble of styles, but none wearing masks now. Johannes nodded. Your most devoted followers, these are. Some of the others at the fire had no idea, of course. Had to let the looky-loos attend, or there would be nobody to sacrifice, would there, he chuckled. Good choice with that fellow, Reverend Mother, added Hildegard. He was most definitely not one of your true believers. Walburga furrowed her brow and made a stopping gesture. My dears, do you think a saint calls for human sacrifices? Silence. I would have solved these COVID and climate change problems for free, you idiots. All you had to do was ask. The room hushed. Johannes and Hildegard exchanged nervous glances. But the man you dropped into the fire? Wasn't that on purpose? Walburga rose and addressed the room, spreading her arms wide. Those of you seeking my blessing have it. You may dispense with the mask wearing forever. You may grow your crops without fear of drought or flood. Pestilence and famine will never again darken your doors. 
She walked around the table, gently touching the shoulders of her worshippers as she passed. In the future, however, you will restore to me my rightful place in the tradition of Walpurgis Nacht. You will fear no witch, nor worship them either. For no witch was I. I was an abbess and a miracle worker. I was one of the most powerful women in Europe. I will be praised as a powerful Christian woman and bless those who seek my blessings. Timidly, Hildegard raised her hand. Reverend Mother, what? What about the American then? The abbess stopped and looked her in the eyes, a smile playing at the corners of her mouth. Yes, Hildegard, she whispered. That was personal. And that's the end of my story. <laughs> that was so good. I love how you blended everything together and you have got a great descriptive style. Thanks. So how did you even come up with the idea for this? The contest rules included that you had to have something about masks and or a masquerade and moonlight. So I was thinking about an outdoor ritual sort of deal. And then I just thought about the witches on top of the Brocken. And then I looked up what has or has not occurred up there and who Abbas Walberga was. And I thought, wow, that's a coincidence. People might actually want to pray to somebody like that. <laughs> yeah. That is so cool. I love the way you blended it all together. And it's Thanks. a perfect story for Halloween. This is going to be so great for the listeners. Oh, I hope so. Now, I do want to ask, what is the book that you have been working on? I am working on a children's fantasy for middle school grades. And it is about a girl that goes to a magical world where you can have anything you want, almost anything you want. Um, they've got a magical source that these people called Hordes, they just take things out of the earth. They have so much stuff. They have collections and piles, and their goal is basically to just have more, more, more. And this girl has hoarding tendencies also, and she's got a friend that's a magpie. The magpies in this world... They represent the natural order, and of course, some animals do hoard a little bit. But then, on the other hand, there's these um, humanoid types that are just taking it too far, and the girl has to figure that out. <laughs> that sounds really fascinating. Maybe we can have you on for a future show, and you can read some of that for us. That would be awesome. Thanks. I really and look maybe forward to that. Maybe someday I'll finish it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So, well, we will get together about the writing group and I'll give you that information and also post it for all the listeners in case anybody else would like to join the writing group. Great, but thanks. I think you would really like some of the critiques that they give you and would be very helpful for you for finishing that book. It would. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So, well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so much fun. I loved your story and I know the listeners are going to love it too. All right, Diane. It was good to be on your show. Thank you, and we will have you back very soon with another story from you. All right, bye. So there you have it, my happy people. My friend Carrie Donovan and her award-winning short story. You can also check it out in the links in the podcast description if you would like to read the story again for yourself. And as always, it is that time for you to go forth and please be happy. Mm -hmm.